Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Four Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo, uh, joined by my co-host today, Matt DeBear. Matt, I'm in a really bad mood. I, you know what, Bill? Me too. I, I <laughs> couldn't begin to tell you what caused it, but it's just, I don't know if it's Sunday night when we're recording this or or what it is, but just kind of kind of feeling a little bit down. Well, part of it is that I need, uh, God, I can't for the life of me, uh, Tyree Kill to start uh, going off in fantasy so I can... Uh, win in my work week, but I think uh, it, it more has to do with the fact that we are uh, 24-ish, a little more than 24 hours removed from uh, Felton Davis ripping our hearts out again. Uh, Michigan State came into Happy Valley this week, uh, 3.30 kick in Beaver Stadium. We all thought Penn State was going to have a bounce-back game following uh, a heartbreaker against Ohio State. Had a bye week to prepare, and they more or less laid an egg, losing 21-17 to the Spartans. Trace McSorley, hardly his best game, 19 for 32, 192 yards, one touchdown. Miles Sanders, uh, 17 carries, 162 yards, and a touchdown. I've seen a lot of people go, hey, those came on two carries. Whatever, it's still 17 carries for 162 yards. It's a good day. K.J. Hamler, five catches, 66 yards. And a score to lead the way for the Nittany Lions. Uh, otherwise, uh, there's not a lot. Uh, there's not a lot that Matt and I willingly want to talk about. So we are going to just give one kind of brief thing that we want to say about this game, uh, and then we actually turn this one over to you. If you uh, were on Twitter at all on Sunday night, you saw that we were asking for questions. So. We have a list. We're going to go through all of them. Uh, if we got to yours, thank you for submitting it. We're glad we get to talk about that. If we didn't get to yours, again, thank you for submitting. You just didn't have uh, the ability to talk about it on this one. Uh, the only person who I will call out is Twitter user at PSU Toaster, uh, because how dare you suggest that the football team is not eating toast with the logo on it. Uh, but Matt, I uh, think we just need to talk a little broadly uh, just this game, what you're feeling right now, uh, your thoughts on it, those kind of uh, basic things. Kind of take the 10,000-foot view of this game. Well, I think you and I were talking about this real briefly before we, we hit record on this. And and we've kind of been talking about it on and off all day, just you know, as, as fans are known to do, breaking things down and, and playing the what-if game. But I think in a general sense where – not necessarily these were the issues yesterday, but we all kind of knew this was a, a flawed team in a couple ways going into the year, specifically defensive tackle and linebacker and even safety to some degree. But I think you and I both, Bill, came kept coming back to this is a team that has a senior, fifth-year senior quarterback in Trace McSorley that's going to help cover up a lot of those those warts. And while, like I said, I don't think those were necessarily the primary issues yesterday, I think in a general sense, the guy that you kind of rely on to make this thing go and has made it go for the last two and a half years, Trace McSorley, just like you said up off the top, to not have his best game. And for Penn State to win, they need Trace McSorley to be their best player in most weeks. And that just wasn't the case yesterday. And we'll get into this with some of your questions here coming up. But I just kind of felt like his game was kind of emblematic of the whole team where they were just kind of stuck in neutral or really just couldn't find their way. And I think some credit goes to Michigan state for playing a heck of a game and taking away a lot of what Penn state wanted to do. I think some of that is self-inflicted by Penn state, just not really um, 
you know, making tackles or uh, making the play when they had it. We'll talk about it a little bit here in a bit with the, the chances to make plays down the stretch that just weren't made. Um, but just really kind of a disappointing performance all around. I don't think this was this was different than the Ohio State game where Ohio State felt that they kind of took the game from Penn State. I think Penn State kind of gave this one to Michigan State by letting them hang around, letting the team that is is the underdog get more belief as the game goes on because they never really allowed Penn State to pull away or Penn State ever took the opportunity to pull away. And what you've got is, you know, a one-score game. All it takes is one play, and Michigan State made that one play at the end. Yeah, and that's what I think, like, makes this one so painful. It's that, um, one, Michigan State was able to make when, – when Michigan State had to make one play to win the game, uh, Brian Lewerke threw a football to Felton Davis. It was a perfect play call, perfect execution, and they were able to get six. Penn State had a few opportunities to, quote-unquote, make that one play, whether it was – that final fourth down, uh, that final fourth quarter drive um, after Michigan State had punted, a first down seals the game. They weren't able to do that. Or uh, first and goal, you're knocking on the doorstep, you run it, you get stuffed, you run it, you get stuffed, you throw a fade, gets knocked away, you kick the field goal. Weren't able to do that. A field goal that goes off the uprights. Just Penn State had opportunities to win this game, and they didn't. And unlike the loss to USC in the Rose Bowl, unlike the last two losses to Ohio State, and really unlike losing at Michigan State last year, I think this is the one game of those five games that get pointed to, five losses by 12 points, you've heard it over and over by now. This is the one game where I think, unquestionably, Penn State is on the whole a better football team than the other team on the other sideline. And that's what I think makes this one hurt so bad. Because this is the first time... When you beat the team... You lose the teams that you're not necessarily supposed to beat. You can beat them, but you're not supposed to beat them. That's when it hurts. Those are the losses that... Well, those are the losses that don't hurt. I apologize. But when you lose to the teams that you are supposed to beat, that you are better than that you are uh, certainly better than on a neutral field and let alone your home field, that's when it hurts. And that's why this one is so, so brutal. Uh, just guys having not having the best possible days at the worst possible times, guys making mistakes at the worst possible times, uh, weird stuff like uh, Brian Lewerke throwing a pass backwards and the refs going, well, he was trying to throw it forward, so it doesn't matter. Like, just that kind of dumb stuff. And all that stuff eventually comes to a head, and it culminates in what happened on uh, Saturday afternoon. Um, do you want to talk about the officiating real quick? Because we didn't get any officiating questions, uh, but I have an officiating take that I want to fire off, and I want to hear uh, just kind of your general officiating thoughts, if you want to dive into them. I guess, you know, in a close game, it's easy to point to the one or two plays that weren't that, that or the one or two penalties that, that happened. I think the defensive holding call, especially on Robert Windsor, that yeah. led directly to the, uh, um, I guess the second Michigan State touchdown, um, or helped keep the drive alive. A weak call, but Penn State had chances to make plays after that. Mm-hmm. And I think in a broader sense, 
speaks to some of the youth and inexperience um, and maybe some of the, the fragile psyche of the de- mm-hmm. defense as specifically where when they've had things go wrong, whether it be that, that questionable penalty call like that or the fake punt or, or whatever it might be, I think you can point to a number of, game, of situations throughout this year, you know, in the, through the six games so far, where they haven't necessarily recovered quickly, you know, whether it's sudden change or they give up the big, the big play on a trick play or whatever, or the penalty or whatever it might be. I think that's probably the bigger takeaway. It doesn't really speak to the officiate. I don't think it was very good. I don't think it cost yeah. Penn State the game. But um, I think that's the kind of thing where maybe a more experienced team or with more experienced players in the right position, those sorts of things don't happen. Um, you can even point to, to uh, C.J. Thorpe's uh, unsportsmanlike yep. penalty call yep. that on a third down play that really didn't, um, you know, obviously, who, who knows if Michigan State goes for it on the fourth and short there, but just another situation where I think Penn State, whether it was self-inflicted or not, really struggled to recover from. Yeah, I mean, the ofi- but my big thing, yes, the officiating was terrible. Um the Windsor penalty was ghastly. I mean, you can't call like you can call that, but if you're going to call it there, you have to call it on every play uh, because that sort of thing happens on every play where you like a guy just accidentally gets a bit of someone's jersey. Um, the backwards pass, terrible. Like you, that that should have been se- uh, second and twenty. It should not have been. I'm, I'm still not entirely. Mike Pereira came on and tried to explain it, and I I don't. Under, if, if that's actually the rule, I don't understand the rule. I think it was something like, like you said, he was trying to throw it yeah. forward, but he got hit, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. I, I don't understand bizarre. that. But yes, bizarre. Yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, of the th- like three things that I think stick out the most, like the Thorpe penalty is just ghastly. I mean, you can't get, you can't do that. Um, yeah, that that's the one that like, I just kind of throw my hands in the air, but like you mentioned, Matt, how about you don't put the officials in a position where they can decide the game? Like this is not trying to be like empathetic to the officials at all. Um, because you know, they dropped the ball on a, in a few instances, uh, including one time where someone literally dropped the ball. Uh, but you have to have to have to, you cannot put the game in a situation where it's going to, what the official decides is going to determine whether or not you win or lose that football game. And it was just mistake after mistake by Penn State on offense and on defense that eventually led to Michigan State being able to get this win. Um, we wanted, like I mentioned, we wanted to turn it over to you guys uh, so we're not just uh, people screaming into a void about a loss. Uh, and we wanted to have stuff to talk about. And we wanted to have uh, our listeners be the people who kind of dictate the direction that we go in on this edition of the podcast. Uh, so let's get started. Uh, we're going to package some stuff together. You guys had a lot of questions about the wide receivers. A lot. I have five questions about the wide receivers that I mushed together. Um, and we will be sure to get to those a little bit later. Uh, but I think I want to start with what was a really good question from at Nat Ryan 7 Matt, what's more reflective of where this team is at? The close loss to Ohio State or yesterday's loss to Michigan State? 
I think to answer the question directly, I think probably closer to the Ohio State close loss than yesterday. Um, but I think the the accurate answer is probably somewhere in the middle. But I lean more more towards the optimistic side, I suppose. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about this too as we get into some of these other questions. I think, but what I took away from yesterday more than anything is that um, for whatever reason, whether you want to blame coaching or execution or officiating or some combination of all three of those, this was a team that wasn't in the right mindset to play, which is really surprising when you consider that James Franklin made a point on Wednesday of saying this is, you know, the day before had been their best practice in what, four years, I think is what he, he told the media. And I think for the second straight year, there was a little bit of a, a hangover. It was the things just seemed out of whack from the get go. And I think, like I said earlier, you have to credit Michigan state for some of that, but I think there was a lot of, I don't think it was, they went to that game still thinking about Ohio state directly, but I think that was, that was there. I think it's, it's hard to watch quite literally the same thing that happened a year ago in a lot of ways happen again and not, not put some of that on the lingering effects from the, the close emotional loss two weeks ago. And we, we talked about this um, last week, pre previewing the game that we thought the bye week would help. But I think as a team, you look more at the the physical talent, the capability of the team, and I think that is closer to what we saw against Ohio State than what we saw on Saturday. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that... How do I phrase this? I think that you judge where a team is at, or it's better to judge a team when uh, they're playing a game where not everything goes wrong which is why I'm inclined to say Ohio State. Like, I think that when you look at Penn State on the whole, uh, the way it is recruiting, the way that it's getting talent into the program, and the way that over the last two years it has been able to win. Yeah, it's had uh, close losses, but there are like nine FBS uh, nine Power 5 programs that have won double-digit games each of the last two years, and Penn State's one of them. It's a sign of a good of a good program. And I think that when it is at its best, Penn State is the team that played with Ohio State that was better than Ohio State for, you know, 55 minutes of a football game. Um, I think that the Michigan State game, however, showed that something that I wrote about, which is that this team, this specific team, when it struggles, it's merely an okay or a good team. When Trace struggles, it's merely an okay or a good team. And McSorley is going to play well. You know, he's a senior quarterback. He's going to play well more frequently than he plays poorly, which is why I'm inclined to go, say, a little bit closer to Ohio State. But the defense for, you know, that final drive, that dastardly final drive, it played good for, you know, 58 minutes and uh, 30 seconds of a football game yesterday, aside from a few uh, self-inflicted mistakes. So, like, that's positive. That's the thing to take away. The offense, when it's good, it's really good. I mean, like, despite the loss yesterday, Penn State is still 7th nationally in S&P+. It's 19th offensively and 16th defensively. Like, this team is still a good... 
when they're firing on all cylinders, they're still a good team. It's just that I, the thing that I think was put on display last uh, last night was that when they hit their walls and when they're not playing up to the best of their ability, that's really, really obvious. Uh, and I think this kind of leads into uh, the next question from uh, Roar Lions Roar uh, Hall of Famer Len. Uh, where should I direct my impotent rage specifically? Is it coaching, game planning, schematic stuff, or just dudes not being dudes? And I, 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 Matt, I think the answer might be six of one, half dozen of the other, but I like, I can be talked into just about anything here. I, I agree with you, Bill. I think to answer Len's question, the answer is yes. I think yesterday specifically, I thought that, um, was the really the first time in a while that I was disappointed in the overall coaching. Um, there's some questions coming up about, um, you know, are there anyone specifically that should be in trouble or, you know, you know, or, or guys in danger of losing jobs, that sort of thing. I, I felt like, yeah, we can go back to the Ohio State game briefly. There were, you know, you know specific situations where I think we all second guess, you know, this happened or that happened. But by and large, I think the coaching staff, especially for the last two and a half years, has done a really, really good job. You don't win, what is it, 26 games in the last two and a half years without doing something a number of things really well, but I think the offensive game plan yesterday was, was lacking. I think the, the motivation to get ready for that game was lacking. Um, I talked about it last week and I talked about it a little bit earlier on, on this episode that you can't let Ohio state beat you twice. And I think for the second straight year, that, that was a factor. Um, we can debate how much of it, how much of a factor it was, but I think one of the things you hope for from anyone, regardless of what they do, is you learn from from mistakes. And I don't think that the coaching staff necessarily did that um, from 2017 to 2018. I think a lot of the same things that happened last year at Michigan State happened again on Saturday. And that's just inexcusable to me, especially when you consider James Franklin's statement after the Ohio State came that, that they're done being great. And I think you touched on this in what you wrote on Saturday, Bill, that that wasn't necessarily directed towards this team specifically. I think it was more of an overarching statement on the program and where he wants to take things. But you can't you can't follow that up with this kind of performance. And I think and I think everyone, I think the coaching staff knows that as well as anyone. Um, and so it's one where I'm really interested to see where it goes from here. Um, we can get into the X's and O's, and we might do that a little bit. That's not not my my expertise by any means. It's not really what I, I enjoyed talking about on these things to answer the last part of Len's questions about uh, dudes being dudes. We talked about this already a little bit that, and this goes back to all five of the, the, the five losses by 12 points things that we're going to harp on. We'll hear it, you know, until they win one of those, those close games. Oh, it's until they win a few of those close games and, and they win those games against elite opponents. And, and you're absolutely right. But I think, you know, again, guys were in position to make plays. It, it yesterday probably shouldn't have come down to that, but they still had the chance. And whether it's, um, you know, we'll start on the offense. Whether it's it's Juwan Johnson holding a block for a second longer, so Trace McSorley has a better chance to get the first down on that third down scramble that, that would have ended the game. Whether it's Garrett Taylor dropping an interception on Michigan State's second to last possession, or Amani Oruwariye dropping one on the last possession, or just missing one earlier. 
I think John Reed had a near miss that was a potential pick six. So that, that's the, the tough part about a one-score game is it's so easy to pick out one play that can make a big difference. But I think it's, it's hard to put it entirely on coaching when guys have chances to make plays and they just don't make them. And that's the, that's the frustrating part. And when you see a guy like Amani Oruwarwe, who I just I feel awful for in a sense because he's a senior, he's, he's made so many big plays in his, in his career at Penn State that to see him not only drop the interception but also then get beat in a situation where I, I wish he wasn't one-on-one there, I think that's – we talked about it last week. It's the one thing you, you knew you couldn't do. You couldn't let Felton Davis beat you. And what happened? Felton Davis ended up one-on-one with 20 seconds left in the game on the line. That just can't happen. But for a kid who's played really well and made a bunch of big plays to to have have that be kind of the lasting memory from Saturday, two plays in the final minute and a half that he just didn't make is frustrating. But that it wasn't just him. There were a lot of guys. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's a little bit of everything. Yeah, I mean, it's the thing with football is that it's a uh... – it's the ultimate team game like you and I think if we want to believe what the team says what Franklin says what the players say about winning as a team and losing as a team this is on everyone it's on uh James Franklin for not having the team uh completely over the Ohio State loss if that's what happened or not completely ready to play just as much as it's not on the players for executing. I mean, you sure there are t- things that like, I wish there was a little more creativity in the offense, a little bit more of a desire to go for the throat, but also can you really go for the throat when uh, Juwan Johnson has struggled to hold on to catching passes this year? And just like, it's such a broad thing. Like, I think you can afford to be mad at really everyone to one extent or another. And I know this is a pretty wishy-washy answer, but like, if you win football games as a team and you celebrate team achievements when you win the game, you have to lose as a team. Like, you have to be willing to say, Trace McSorley needed to play better in that game. Just as much as you have to say, uh, you know, James Franklin has to have them ready to play in that kind of game. Just as much as you have to say, the players have to execute. You have to say that they have to be put into better position to execute. Just, it's such a broad thing that you can't really bring it down to one person or persons, even if uh, there are trends that pop up that I'm sure we're going to talk about momentarily. Um, the next question. I mean, Matt, I'll answer this one and I'll throw it to you if you have anything to add. Uh, from at Tom Rhodes, this is a young team that seemed to get better each week before MSU. Are they backsliding or did they lose focus this week? The only way I can answer that is I will answer that question after they play Indiana and Iowa. Like, that's really the only way you can approach it. Like, I think it's possible that they lost focus this week and they're going to come out next week and they're going to uh, play a tough Indiana team and beat them. Uh, then they're going to do the exact same thing the following week against Iowa and have a little bit of momentum heading into the big house. Uh, but it's also possible that a, a tough Indiana team that has always pe- played Penn State uh, difficult, that has a, you, you know, they're not, this isn't the best Indiana team by any stretch of the imagination, but they're still a tough team. 
they can win that game. It's in their building. Penn State has lost there before, and we're starting to see some cracks form at Penn State. A few weeks later, they're playing an Iowa team that's 21st in S&P+. I, I, I think, again, I think Penn State should win that game, but I thought Penn State should beat Michigan State too. So it's a good question. It's just one that I don't know, Matt, that we can answer right now. Yeah, I generally agree. I think my my instinct says that it's a young team that that took a step back, but I don't think it's backsliding. Um, I think that it's, it's the nature of young, inexperienced teams that you don't. It's not that straight line, you know, perfect ascent to to greatness. If you want to think of it like, like that, it's you know you have bumps along the way, and I think we not, none of us expected one on Saturday, but. Um, you know, none of, no one expected Ohio State to lose by 30 to Iowa. No one expected Tennessee to go into Auburn and beat them yesterday. Um, you know, college football is weird. Um, I don't think anyone expected LSU to beat Georgia by 20 or whatever they did. Um, so I think it's, like I said, we'll know more, like you said, Bill, after this weekend against Indiana and the Iowa game. But my instinct is that it's more of a, a step back than a backslide. Yeah, totally fair. Uh, next two uh, are questions that I grouped together. Uh, one is from our old pal Devin, which says, assuming the offense fails to take massive steps forward over the next few weeks, Ricky Ronnie's got to go right. Uh, next is from my buddy Steve, who wants to know if the season continues to spiral, uh, which assistant coaches should be concerned about their jobs and who is the safest. Um, for who is the safest, I don't know if they're uh, – it, it, like, I think that might be a bit of a tough question just because, like, like I think that Sean Spencer would be 100% about as safe as can be, but also, like, there's a possibility that he's the safest coach Penn State has in terms of be you know, job security, but that also means that some school's going to call up and try and make him his defensive coordinator. Uh, but I think, you know, you could probably look around and you go, yeah, Sean Spencer's probably pretty safe, uh, uh, Matt Limegrover is probably going to end up being pretty safe. I guess that Tyler Bowen, the tight ends coach, ends up being pretty safe. Uh, Terry Smith, I'd be very surprised if he gets fired. Tim Banks, I'd be very surprised if he gets fired. Brent Pry, I wouldn't be surprised if he is gone, but that's more because he's flirted with a few head coaching jobs in the past, and you never know what's going to pop up next. Uh, but Matt, I think we need to look at... Um, we won't talk about David Corley, just because, again, we have a bunch of wide receiver questions, and I'm sure that his name will pop up a few times in there. Uh, but looking at Ricky Ronnie, uh, and I think this also might be the place to discuss Phil Galliano, um, what do you think about some stuff that might have to be re-eva- might have to be evaluated as we go over the rest of this season and as we get into uh, into the winter and then eventually the spring of the summer? Well, to answer to answer Devin's question, I unless things spiral out of control, which I think is Steve's the second part of the second question, yeah, is the terminology he used. Um, I'd be absolutely shocked if anything happens to Ricky Ronnie. I think up until Saturday, they've been pretty good. You met, listed off the S and P plus numbers. I don't remember them off the top of my head, but I don't think aside from second guessing a play call here or there before Saturday again. I don't think the offense has been bad. I think it has been inconsistent, which I think regardless of who was calling the plays, that'd be, be a factor. I, I go back to last year against Michigan State, and I 
think all of us would agree that Joe Moorhead didn't have his best game running the offense in East Lansing last year. Um, a lot of the same issues. So I think some of that points to their under their ability to attack in state defense, Michigan State's defense ability to slow down Penn State's offense. Um, so I, I'd be shocked if anything happens to Ricky Ronnie unless things, like I said, take a big step backwards. Um, the Phil Galliano one is fascinating to me because um, I feel like in a couple of his comments after games, not just yesterday, but during the year, James Franklin has been pretty protective of him. Um, yesterday specifically, he, he mentioned at least once, maybe a couple times, that they had spent all week preparing for, for the fake punt. And I, I don't have the exact quote here in front of me right this second, but he even commented that, uh, I believe it was Lamont Wade, um, is the one who, who made the mistake on, on what, what he was supposed to do there. So I, I guess what I would counter, and, and maybe this happened as he's you know, leaving the sideline, someone tells him, be prepared for this. But I, to look at it in a bigger picture, the special teams have just really struggled as a whole. Um, I don't think, I mean, field goal kicking, if you want to blame that on coaching, I guess, but um, you've got a true freshman kicker that I'm not sure has been given the best opportunity so far. Made um, every PAT. That is that is true. And they, they've kicked <laughs> off pretty well, but you, you can't give up onside kicks twice in the first, was it first three games that happened? You can't get beat on a fake punt when you know it's coming. And, and really, even the fake field goal yesterday, without a great play by Garrett Taylor, who seemed to kind of come out of nowhere, they get beat on a second fake that gives Michigan State the lead earlier than they got it. So, you, Bill, you know that I'm generally pretty passive about removing coaches and, and a level of optimism and patience, but I really do think, unless you see some big improvement there over the next six games, the second half of the year, that's something that they're going to have to look at. Um, I think Charles Huff did a, did a fantastic job with that unit in his four seasons here um, as he got more and more talent into the into the pipeline to, to run out there on his special teams units. Yeah, By I, all means, this oh. should be the most talented group of special teamers, and it just really hasn't taken that step. They haven't, they haven't been especially dominant covering covering punts they haven't been especially dominant returning them um they've had a couple flashes here but it's just it's been not as good as it should have been there's a noticeable step back between last year and this year with a group that's at least as talented as as you had in 2017 yeah i mean i'm always going to uh to be in the corner of the italian american so phil galliano i i i i want you to succeed pal but something i come back to and I keep coming back to, is that if you want to be an elite program, you have to be elite across the board. It has, especially if you're going to do uh, what James Franklin has done, where there's a head coach of the offense and a head coach of the defense and not an offensive coordinator and a defensive coordinator. And I suppose a special teams coordinator. We could throw that in there too. So with Ronnie, I don't know if he, if it's a has to go thing. Like, I mean, for the first, uh, obviously the competition has changed, uh, but during the first four weeks of the season, Penn State had the best scoring offense in college football, and Trace McSorley was able to 
do some really good stuff. And there were some good play calls when it came to like design quarterback runs and things like that against Ohio State. Michigan State was just a really bad game. And I think this week, that when it comes to Ronnie, it leads to people going, maybe we should start paying a little bit more attention to him. Maybe we should uh, make sure this doesn't happen again. He could very easily silence the doubters that have popped up about his ability to call games if Penn State goes out and whoops Indiana and then Iowa and then has a good showing against uh, Michigan and Wisconsin. Uh, But, again, an elite program, you need elite standards. And if it starts, if this is the start of something and we see the offense start slipping with Trace McSorley, when you know you're not going to have him in uh, eight or nine football games, whenever the number, uh, no, it'll probably be seven. Fuck, oh, goddamn it, we're losing Trace. Seven football games. Then yeah, maybe you have to. I, I'm not saying fire him, but he goes into next season uh, thinking that you know what, you might have to show something uh, in your second year at the helm, or else this big questions are going to be asked about the direction of the program. Uh, that also goes for Galliano for the reasons that you explained, Matt. I, I, I mean, I think special teams. I can live with... Uh, if the punting wasn't great, I can live with that. If the place kicking wasn't great, I could live with that. Uh, if the returns weren't great, I could live with those. And yeah, like there have been mistakes in those areas, whatever. The one thing that I cannot get over is repeated lapses in confidence. Like, stuff you have to be prepared for. Like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And Penn State's been fooled twice on... They've been fooled multiple times on fake... on uh, Whether it's uh, on surprise onside kicks, whether it's been uh, fake punt, like, that sort of thing. That's where you have to start asking some questions, and we'll see how it plays out over the next couple of weeks. Again, we'll get to uh, David Corley in a second. He's another guy who I think has to start answering some questions. But before we do that, a question from at WeAreLinebackerU31. What's up with the lack of a pass rush? Um, Against Ohio State, the lack of a pass rush, I attribute to the fact that Ohio State's offensive line is incredibly good. Um, Against Michigan State, I'm not as sure what happened. Um, I thought Penn State could have gotten some pressure on Brian Lewerke, and I'm, I'll go back and watch him. I'm sure Michigan State could have, did a good job getting out of his hands. But if you believe that yesterday was a down day for everyone, then it makes some sense, I suppose. I mean, Matt, what do you what do you have to say about the pass rush? Well, I think it's it's been inconsistent at best, and, and I'd argue after watching a fair amount of the Minnesota Ohio State game, I think Minnesota did a good job getting the Haskins yesterday. And whether they did a better job against Penn State, you know, it's it's human nature, especially with college kids. You're going to get up for bigger games. You know, Penn State, Ohio State's a bigger game than Ohio State, Minnesota. So it kind of stands to reason that they're going to be more ready to play that game. But I think Ohio State did some good things to to limit it with the quick passes for the most part. Um, I thought they did a decent job getting Tulawerke yesterday. He was, what, 13 of 33 through the first three quarters of the first you know, majority of the game before he, he caught fire late. Um, I think they forced a number of bad passes, even if it des- didn't necessarily show up on on the stat page as a sack. I think they got credited with two. Uh, Miller had one, and uh, I believe Robert Windsor had one. Um, Shaka Tony got 
to him a number of times, didn't get him on the ground. Uh, Etor Grossmanos, I think, had a really good game. Um, but I think it's it's the general lack of consistency that that's frustrating, um, and that doesn't go just for the pressure on quarterbacks. That's for a number of areas in the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I digress. I think, and I'm kind of shooting from the hip here a little bit on this, I think part of it is that everyone knows that the strength of the of the defensive line is at the end. Um, that's where the experience is. That's where the the more of the talent is. And so I think that's led to teams game planning around that and the tackle position. I think Kevin Gibbons has played well. Robert Windsor kind of is what he is. Um, he's not going to be a guy that puts up big numbers, but it's allowed teams because of the, the gap between the end and tackle talent. It's allowed teams, I think to kind of plan to limit what guys like Sharif Miller and Etour Gross Matos do um, and try and force the tackles to make plays. Um, I, I think Shane Simmons' absence has a lot to do with it. I think Ryan Buchholz retiring before the season has a lot to do with that. I think just in general, they a couple pieces that they expected to have going into the year, um, they didn't have either of them until Saturday, and they just got Saint, Shane Simmons back for the first time on Saturday. So my instinct is that that improves over the next six games. Um, but I, to answer the question, I think it's just a, a personnel issue, so to speak. Yeah, and one thing with uh, Penn State's defensive line is that to have a really, really good defensive line, you have to have one or two things. You either have to have one top-end talent that is just like other teams can't mess with it. Like guys who are terrors and nightmares on every single snap. And, you know, they have guys like that it's just Jason Owet is young and raw. Micah Parsons has to play linebacker. Etor Grossmatos is a sophomore. Like the guys who are going to be elite defensive linemen are just not quite there yet. Uh, which is, I mean, I'd prefer that wasn't the case, but that's fine. Like when you know uh, the light at the end of the tunnel is going to be so bright, they can go through the darkness of the tunnel without too much concern. That's fine. I guess. The issue is the other the way to mitigate that is to have a whole bunch of depth along your defensive line where you can constantly rotate in dudes who there isn't much of a drop off from your starters, which is something that I think we saw uh, you know earlier in uh, you, you know we saw that in the year they won the Big Ten championship where they didn't have like elite dudes, but they had a bunch of really solid defensive linemen. And unfortunately, Penn State's depth is mostly made up of younger guys who aren't quite there, there yet. Or it's, you know, someone like C.J. Thorpe, who uh, was a defensive line, offensive lineman until uh, two and a half weeks ago. So it's stuff like that. And I think the defensive line is going to be, it has the potential to be really, really, really good next year. Uh especially if Micah Parsons moves back to end. Uh, but it's going through a lot of, uh, it's going through some growing pains right now. Mixes of growing pains and pains that pop up from not having top-end talent. Um, another position that doesn't have a lot of top-end talent is a place kicker. Uh, at Travis underscore Ish, where does PSU go from here from their place kicking? Keep Pinnaker or try one of the walk-ons, Matt. 
I the impression that I got just kind of based on nothing other than what we heard about going into the year that Jake Pinniger is kind of their guy. Um, yesterday was really the first time that I think I was kind of disappointed in him. I think the if uh, that seems like I sound like a dad angry at his child. But, Jake, why'd you pee I on the rug, buddy? You look at <laughs> look at his misses. The Ohio State game. Um, was a, I can't remember how long the kick was, but um, I guess you know, the last two games, I guess he's 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 missed in in generally decent conditions. But the the pit game, they had him try a forty plus yarder in a, a monsoon in Heinz Field that is notoriously difficult for kickers. The Illinois game, they had him try a long kick, you know, forty plus yards again in a, a pretty intense wind. Um, I think it kind of is what it is. You know, if you're going from a true freshman, relative unknown, to a another unknown slash true freshman slash true walk on or preferred walk on, um, with whoever you go to, I don't think, and, and this is kind of the place where we've got nothing to do, but trust the coaching staff, I think, because we only get these glimpses, um, during the, the odd chance they have to, to play in a game. The, The coaching staff is watching these guys day after day in practice where, you know, they're, in in theory, at least, are are the best suited to make the decision on on who's the guy to go to. You mentioned it earlier. Pitney's perfect on on extra points. Um, Franklin was pretty adamant going into the year they were going to be they were going to be um, separating the kickoffs and and place kicking duties just because it was a lot to put on one guy. So, I if if he continues to struggle, I think you give whether it's Cheka or uh, one of the other guys that they have in there. Um, I'm blanking on a couple of names at the moment. I apologize to to the other place kickers on the roster. I think you're kind of you kind of left to to stick with what you've got because your other options are are equally unknown. Yeah, it's a weird situation because like you don't want to put too terribly much stock in uh, uh, PATs, uh, but again, he's made all of them. Franklin has said like when you see the guy in practice you see someone who you can trust and it just hasn't really translated to games. And I do think this is uh, a situation where, um, like you said, you almost ha- by default have to trust the coaching staff because uh, every se- thing seems like a good idea until you do it and it doesn't work. Um, so if they were to say to Pinnegar, Jake, we want to give uh, Vlad Hilling a chance to kick some, ki- kick some balls and Hilling starts sailing them and pushing them, pulling them, putting them all over the place. Well, all of a sudden, that's not a good idea. And then it's you have to go to someone else. Okay, Rafael Cheka, you're going to give you a chance. It doesn't work. Okay, uh, Carson Landis. Okay, Blake Gilligan. We'll try you. Like, you can't really fire through options when you're making a relatively informed decision. Uh, my one concern is that if he keeps missing kicks... Uh, it gets into a situation where you're running the risk of him like getting the yips going forward in his career. Um, but you have to cross that bridge when you get to it. And unfortunately, uh, if it gets to that situation, you basically just have to trust the co- that the coaching staff will get a good enough read on things that they know to pull him and uh, give the job to one of his, uh, one of his teammates. Um, next up from at Vetter320, 
I feel like James Franklin is taking heat for being ahead of schedule with the rebuild. His best two recruiting classes are true freshmen and sophomores, plus their last five losses, only five in the last two years. Could have been wins if you changed one play. Am I drinking too much Kool-Aid? This loss was an only bad one. I, I mean, that's a way to look at it. I, I'm Not to say it's wrong, not to say that being uh, upset with how things are going is wrong, uh, but if you're a more glass-half-full kind of person, that's certainly a way to look at it. I mean, I'm reminded of the old uh, paternalism. You're never as good as you think you are when you win, and you're never as bad as you feel when you lose. Uh, and as our friend Audrey Snyder uh, tweeted earlier today, Franklin, after the Kent State game, said there's a after Penn State ran Kent State off the field, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's on that tape that's ugly and smells bad, and winning sometimes is like the deodorant that covers it up. So, I, I mean, it's very possible that, and we'll probably talk a little more big picture stuff in a sec, Matt, but to me, I mean, it's possible, yeah, Franklin's taking a lot of heat, Uh when you're trying to ha- put together a championship-level program, losses are going to be big deals. But yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't be shocked. I'd be a little surprised if they go 10-2. Uh, but this is still a team that has it in them if they get put it all together to win double-digit games again. Yeah, I, this is probably, and I don't mean to offend anyone else we're going to get to here, this is probably my favorite question so far um, because it kind of gets into the stuff that, that I enjoy writing about and I'm going to try and pull some thoughts together on this during the week but I think it's it's a fair way to look at things I don't think it's you know 100% answers every question that we have about where Penn State is because and this is probably the best time to get into this they they this has become a theme like what you wrote about um, after the game on Saturday Bill that yes they've lost five games they've all been close losses uh, what 12 total points is you know five five losses by 12 points is is kind of the, the the mantra now and as much as i like to get into the the coin flip you know it it's luck how how you play in close games it's it rings a little hollow with me because in i believe all five of those games they've had fourth quarter leads and in in three of them i believe both ohio state games and the the rose bowl game against usc they had two score leads in the fourth quarter and that's just you win those games especially if you want to be that elite program that that james franklin is is has stated he wants to he's going to do he's going to bring penn state to that level you win those games and you have two score leads in the fourth quarter, especially in the second half of the fourth quarter, as was the case with at least both Ohio State games. I don't remember the Rose Bowl scoring well enough to, to say definitively one way or another. But I think, and this is probably as good a time as I need it to, to share this thought that I had sometime in the last 24 hours, that I think the Rose Bowl loss and even the Ohio State loss last year are, you know what, tip your hat. Those guys made plays. JT Barrett had the unbelievable game. Sam Darnold was was darn near perfect down the stretch and just you know, made a handful of throws that were just you, you couldn't defend them. Penn State's guys were right there and you know they did everything they could and couldn't stop them. So I, it's almost in my mind, almost like they those two games happened where you kind of tip their cap and then it happened again against Ohio State and it starts to linger in your mind. And then Michigan State did it a week later. And then the really the even the, the Washington game, that game became close down the end. And to their credit, they made the play. 
they, they converted some third downs to, to run the clock out to, to salt that game away and, and clinch the victory. But then it happens again against Ohio State. And you, I think, from coaches on down to players, that it's human nature to just start, oh, no, here we go again. And I think that's reflected in execution. I think it's reflected in the way coaches call the game. I think it's reflected in a lot of different aspects of of where of, of this the, the mantra or the the mindset of the team. And I know I'm kind of getting off topic here of the question, but I th- I think there is some truth to the fact that they have that they're probably ahead of schedule for all intents and purposes. But they are there now, and I think our expectations have risen as as they've they've gotten there earlier than we thought. And I think the future is bright because, like you mentioned, Twitter user Vetter three twenty, their best players, their most talented players, are first and second year players. They've got another recruiting class coming in with more of those those elite talent guys. But it's still fair to question. What you know, some some of the decisions that have been made, some of the 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 things that they've done now that they've gotten to this level. All right, it's time to uh, take a deep breath to uh, get ready because we are about to face an onslaught of questions about Penn State's wide receiving core. Um, I'm just gonna read them all, Matt, and then I think that. Uh, the last question here is the one that we're going to mostly talk about uh, while touching on the other things that are referenced. So, starting with at DE underscore rank outsider, how can the staff continue to justify playing 3-84 and 84 wide receiver? We have a six-game sample size. They're not getting the job done. Maybe their downfield blocking is really top-notch and irreplaceable. At Neil Monnery. With the issues of wide receiver, is it better to throw Shorter and Dodson out there now and burn their retros or hold them back for just four games and add an extra year of eligibility? At Flavy Davy, where are the screen passes? Where are the bubble screens? I don't think I remember one bubble screen this whole season. At B Furman 12, when do they move on from Jawan Johnson as a starter and put someone else in a spot? Who are the other options for that? And then, Matt, the one that I'm going to present to you is kind of your jumping off point. At RMA136, Will the wide receiver play get better? Well, RMA one thirty six. I, if I knew the answer to that question, then then I, maybe I'd be coaching. I don't know, or I, I'd, I'd be I'd be be called into James Franklin's office. I I don't know the answer to that question. Um, and this is probably the one thing that I've talked about both with you, Bill, and with friends and, and other people on the site in the last day is the one coaching position that I have the most question about is David Corley at wide receiver. Um, I don't think there was any question and I don't think any of us denied this when it happened. Losing J- John, Josh Gaddis, <laughs> sorry, Josh has, was a huge loss. And I think we all knew it at the time. There's, there's a reason Alabama came looking for him. He was the guy they targeted as their next wide receiver coach. Um, I think that speaks to, to his ability. Um, I'm not sure they replaced him effectively. And I think it, it, it's reflected in not just the, the drop issues that you've seen. I think the blocking has been inconsistent at best. The, the first game was, was atrocious. Um, DeAndre Tompkins really struggled. I remember three or four plays specifically there. 
it's gotten better since then. But even even against Michigan State, we've touched on it a couple times. Jawan Johnson had a chance to hold a block or make a better block on the, the infamous third down play before Penn State punted back to Michigan State the last time that maybe gets McSorley the first down or at least close enough where where you consider going for it on fourth down or it opens up a lot more ideas than fourth and four or five, which I think what they end up being faced with. Um, I don't think Jawan Johnson has gotten better. And that as that's mentioned in a bunch of the questions here. I don't think DeAndre Tompkins has really gotten better. Um, the question about, you know, what your options are. And I think you're kind of limited in large part due to the injury to Justin Shorter. I think, we all agree that if he was healthy, he would be he'd be in there, and he's pl- appeared in just the one game. I believe it was the the Kent State game. He got a handful of snaps. That's been the only time we've seen him. And all indications that we've had is that he's just not healthy with whatever injury he's had. Um, and if if he's in there, he's the guy that probably allows them to shuffle things around on the wide receiver depth chart a little bit more. Um, you saw a little bit of Cam Sullivan Brown yesterday, who, who's a good player, but he's not he's not Justin Shorter. Um, the third string guy at that position is Daniel George, a true freshman that I think they all have high hopes for. But and I don't have any problem with this. You have to be very careful with putting young players out there in positions that if for them to succeed. I don't think you want to put a guy out there just to put him out there just to to take the other guy out. Um, the other name that, that was mentioned in one of the questions is Jahan, da- Jahan Dotson. He's a slot guy, and I don't think we all, any of us want to take K.J. Hamler out. Um, I think that we receiver positions are a little bit interchangeable, so, so maybe you get him in there and you can shuffle some other things around. But he's a guy, for as good as he is and as good as he will be, he's a undersized guy. He's a buck sixty, a buck sixty-five, I think, at the most, uh, what he's listed on the roster. You're taking chances, especially against physical Big Ten secondaries, um, not just physically being KO, but you know the risk of injury if he's just not physically ready to to play consistently. Um, but but I'm I'm concerned for for all intents and purposes. The the receiver play should be better than it is. There were several plays on Saturday where it felt like. McSorley had time to throw and guys just weren't getting open. And McSorley is a guy that, that as we've seen through two and a half years, takes his chances. You know, if, if he thinks he's got his guys got a chance to make a play, he's going to, he's going to throw the ball to him and let him, let him try and make that play. Um, guys aren't even getting in positions to do that from, from what we can see from the, the TV film. And that's, that's probably the most concerning thing that this is a, a talented group by all for from everything that we've heard and you know by recruiting rankings and everything um that's probably the one area to go back to one of the questions earlier you know which coach is the safest which coach is the most concerned i think number one in that list of guys that you've got to look at especially if things don't improve is is david corley i i think that's probably fair i mean if you're I don't want to say if you're identifying a fall guy because the wide receivers haven't been up to the standard that they were when Josh Gaddis was here. Um, of course, to pin all of your issue, all of your questions on a position coach uh, who isn't Herb Hand, that might be a little bit much. Uh, but just to kind of you know rifle through some of these, 
the wide receiver play is not getting better. We're six games into the season. What the wide receivers are right now is what the wide receivers are. Like Matt said, the one way that changes is if they is if Justin Shorter is healthy enough and is able to play up to his considerable talent that he is able to come in and immediately be a wide receiver one, which to put that on a true freshman, especially a true freshman who's been uh, banged up, is a lot to ask. So what Penn State has at wide receiver right now is what it has, and it is on uh, David Corley, it is on the players, whomever, to work with what they have and find ways that they can improve. I mean, we saw during the... uh, during the Josh Gaddis era, they were really good at blocking downfield. They were really good at running routes. The issues that they yes, they lost Deshaun Hamilton, who was fantastic, and Saeed Blacknall, who, when he was locked in, was able to do some fun stuff. But ye, still, you need to be better than what we've seen, and unfortunately, I just don't think it's going to happen. Juwan Johnson's probably your starting wide receiver on the outside, uh, unless you think that like Mac Hippenhammer is able to uh, Mac Hippenhammer is able to take that step up, or someone like Cam Sullivan Brown. Like, it's a weird situation. Like, the reason I think that people are identifying the wide receiver so much is that coming into this season, we all thought wide receiver was going to be the position to strength on the offense, and it just hasn't been. So you have to hope that Juwan Johnson, I do think it's very possible he's in his own head right now. Uh, when you're dealing with drops and other, it's a, when you're dealing with drops, it is amazing how that can impact the rest of your game. And I think it's possible he's just in his own head and he has to figure out what he's doing and he has to play through this uh or else, once Justin Shorter is uh, healthy and able to go probably next year, there are going to be questions about Juwan Johnson's future at the position and whether he's just going to be a rotation guy for his final year and if he wants that to be how they rem- Penn State remembers him. But otherwise, he's your guy. He is your guy. He is your wide receiver. One, DeAndre Tompkins is the guy who's going to be lining up uh, across from him, either him or Brandon Polk, neither guy who has been especially great this season. The receiving core has been a lot of K.J. Hamler. It's been a lot of Pat Fryermuth helping out, and then it's been a lot of just hoping stuff's able to work out. Um, I don't think... I think Matt touched on Shorter and Dotson pretty well. I just answered that. With stuff like screen passes and bubble screens, um, the only way I can answer that is with another question, which is that do you really want to put these receivers in a position where success is dependent on them able to hold blocks and on basically anyone other than KJ Hamler being able to catch and secure a ball. I'm a little bit weary of that. And it goes back to kind of something I mentioned uh, back in the Pinnaker question. Everything seems like a really good idea until you do it and it doesn't work. And I think that's kind of where Penn State football is at right now. Um, We can sit here and go, Let's see what Cam Sullivan Brown can do on the outside. Let's see what Daniel George can do if you put him in. And sure, maybe you do something like that. But what if it doesn't work? Then you're kind of left with even more questions and having to go back to a guy in a Jawan Johnson or in a DeAndre Tompkins who you've probably just impact 
you've probably just knocked their psyche down a peg or two when it already seems like they're a little bit fragile right now. So it's a really tough situation. Um, I don't want to try and sound too defeatist, but at the end of the day, they might just have to play through to figure out what's wrong and try and get better that way. But I think it's just more likely that this is what Penn State's receiving core is right now. It's KJ Hamler, it's Pat Fryermuth, and then it's a bunch of guys who you basically have to hope for the best. And considering where we were at the start of the year, that's something that's really disappointing to me. Um, to try and make things a little more cheery, a question for Brian Stickler at Brian underscore Stickler. What's been your biggest positive and biggest negative surprise about the team halfway through the season? Uh, We'll just do negative surprise really quickly. Matt, for me, it's been the receivers. So like, I don't think that's... I, I think it's very hard to debate that, but if you have another answer, by all means, go for it. Well, I, I'll go to the other, to the defensive strength I thought think we all had going into the year. I think it was the secondary. Mm. Um, I think they've started to show signs. I think they were really good for 52 minutes against Ohio State for long stretches against Michigan State. Um but I think, and John Reed started to play better. I thought, think he had a really good game against Michigan State, um, for for the most part. But I think, by and large, that group, and even in the Ohio State game and yesterday, they they didn't make the plays. And I think for a group that you you went into going into the year thinking that that okay, we don't have to worry about these guys, that's been a disappointment. That you know, Michigan State specifically, they had a chance to to end the game on a couple of occasions late and they just didn't make the play. And that's a, a group that you thought would make the play. And biggest positive surprise. My guess is we're going to say either the same guy or same couple of guys, but uh, go ahead. I, I think Pat Firemuth and mm-hmm. then I probably, I'm guessing that's who was one of your guys. I, I hesitate to call it a surprise personally, just because I think, selfishly I thought that he was going to be the guy by about this time if not earlier um but I think he's probably exceeded those expectations um and I think in KJ Hamler I think we were all excited about him but he's he's been he's been the guy I think like we've touched on with the receiver question you know you you shudder to think where Penn State is without him no that's those are my exact two guys like I Penn State's offense needs to start finding like they're getting the ball into KJ Hamler's hands. They have to start finding ways to get it into his hands more. Like I I said kind of uh you know jokingly during the offseason that uh Penn State has the next KJ has the next Tavon Austin and KJ Hamler. I did not actually ex- fully expect KJ Hamler to look like the next Tavon Austin this early. That dude is I think it was Spencer Hall who made some observation during his touchdown catch against uh, Ohio State where it looked like his body was running too fast for his head, and that's why his head was, like, falling backwards. Like, yeah. He's just awesome. And then Pat Fryermuth, I mean, he's, he's as well-rounded of – you see how well-rounded of a tight end he is, and I'm so excited to see what he does as his career progresses. And, you know, you don't necessarily get better each year. But if, if he continues to get better, by the time he's done here, he's going to be he's going to be one of the best ever played tight end at this school, and he's going to be one of the best tight ends in the country. He's been just really, really, really fun. So, if I can, I just want to add one thing that kind of jumped into mind as you were talking about Hamler there about finding ways to get the ball in his hand. I think 
and we got some questions and I we apologize for not getting not including them, but about you know, where's Tommy Stevens? And that's that's a whole nother discussion that we'll get into some other time probably. But I think do, do you want to just Ham- do that now? I mean, we're we're over we, an hour. We can, we're we over can. an hour. If you're still listening to this, you're listening to the end. So I'm adding a question. Like we got one or two questions about Tommy Stevens, where he is, the Lion package, all that stuff. Uh, my thoughts are basically what I've mentioned about everything works until it doesn't, and when the for how high of a reward the Tommy package is, we saw against Ohio State that when it doesn't work, it really doesn't work. But Matt, go ahead. Well, I think to just to finish my thought on Hamler real quick, I think he allows you to do a lot of the things you did with Stevens with, you know, without the obvious passing threat, but the ability to get the ball in his hands in in multiple ways. And then I, I'm shocked we haven't seen the the jet sweep look that they ran for the touchdown against Pitt since then. Um, I think they they ran a version of it with Hippenhammer uh, in the two point play against Ohio State, which no, <laughs> but. To, to to meld that into the, the Stevens question, I think the Stevens package, the line package, has become really, really predictable. And the question is, from my point of view, is who do you take off to put him on? It's typically been a running back or a line or a tight end. And I don't know if you take you certainly don't take out Pat Firemuth as far as I'm concerned. He he's too important in both the blocking and the receiving game. And I'm not sure you take off uh, Miles Sanders or, or Ricky Slade either. I think you you lose too much, and you're you're telegraphing a lot of what you want to do. Um, and I don't think it's using Tommy Stevens as a decoy. I don't think gains you a whole lot when you have to take off one of those other guys to do it. So um, I think it's it's a fun gadget play. I think when we've seen it have success, it's been against um, lesser teams. You know, think Maryland, think Rutgers. Or in late in, in blowout games, think Iowa a couple of years ago. So um, I think we'll see it again. I think we'll see it on hopefully on Saturday against against Indiana because that's the kind of matchup where I think it can be beneficial. But I don't think um, I think there's a reason why you know Joe Moorhead last year running this offense. I think a guy every Penn State fan can agree you know knew what he was doing. There's a reason he did not run and run that that series of plays in the Michigan game, in the the Ohio State game, in the Michigan State game a year ago. Yeah, and the thing with the Tommy package, beyond what I mentioned about, you know, it's a good idea until it doesn't work, you can really only run that when you're in a game against a team that can't match Steven's mix of physicality and athleticism. Um. Because when you're going against a team like Ohio State, you put the ball in Tommy Stevens' hands, and the person who's going to get to him is like some outside linebacker who runs a 4-6 and weighs 230 pounds and flies around like a missile. So it, it it's a little bit tricky. I get not wanting to use the Tommy package uh, against... One, teams with talent, and two, teams like a Michigan State that's really well-disciplined and really well-coached, and now that we have a year of the Tommy package on film, they're going to be prepared for it and know what to expect and all that sort of thing. But I'm sure, sure that it will make an appearance 
in a few more games down the stretch. Like, if Penn State wants to run it up on Maryland again, I would not be surprised if we see the Tommy package then. But we'll get we'll cross that version. We'll get to it. Last question, Matt, is from uh, at Rich Homie Flom. Uh, by how much do you think you'll lose to Michigan? And I want to kind of take that to look at the rest of the schedule. Michigan is obviously the big one. Um, ask me right now. I don't think Penn State's winning that game. Uh, I think Michigan's playing with a whole lot of mojo. I think that game's going to be at the big house. Um, I'd be a bit surprised if Penn State was able uh, to pick up a win over the Wolverines. And I think that game has the potential to be something, you know, like a 28-20 to 20 game or something like that. Certainly not the 49-10 blow we saw the last time Penn State went there. But the thing that sticks with me, every other game on this schedule is very, very, very winnable. Whether it's against a bottom feeder like a Rutgers or a Maryland, whether it's against uh, an Indiana or an I. Well, yeah, I was a bit better than Indiana, but in Indiana, which is kind of, you know, not great, but not bad either. Or whether it's a solid team like in Iowa or a Wisconsin, and even to a certain extent in Michigan, because we know when this team is, when Penn State's playing well, it plays really well. Every game on this schedule is winnable. And as I look over this second half of the year, Getting another 10-win season is big. It's a big sign for progress. It's rare that teams are able to win uh, double-digit games in three consecutive years, just running down the list of Power 5 teams that have won them in two consecutive years. Clemson and Oklahoma are going to do it again. Oklahoma State's not going to do it. Ohio State's going to do it again. Wisconsin, it's a bit iffy. Washington, probably. USC, possibly Bama, definitely, that's an elite list of teams. And if you, there's still a lot to play for in a big picture sense. So while, yeah, the playoff is out of reach right now, getting to 10 wins is something, whether it's, you know, 10 and 2 in the regular season, which I'd prefer, whether it has to be 10 and 3 uh, with a win in a bowl game, that's a big thing that not a lot of programs are able to do. And I think that, again, from a big picture sense, that's what this team needs to play for in addition to, you know, stuff like putting Trace's name all over the record book. Ian, I, I'm in the same boat as you, Bill. I, to answer the question about Michigan, I asked me in two weeks, I think to, to answer a question about the November 3rd game on October 14th is, is an emotional task at best because of, of where Penn state is right now and where we are as fans at this moment. But the one thing I will add to what you said is Michigan had an emotional, you know, night primetime game against Wisconsin where they just rolled the Badgers last night. They go to Michigan State, you know, their their second biggest the game biggest game of the year this coming weekend. And they've got that off week, which I think, you know, in theory should help, you know, come down from the the emotions of, of those two big games back to back and kind of help recharge their tanks before Penn State comes to town. But it's still a third big game in a row, and we see it a lot all over the country where it's hard to get up for big games consistently. And if Michigan gets through Michigan State this weekend, then all of a sudden they're sniffing the top five. They're thinking 
Big Ten championship and playoff and all those things. So I'm, I'm really curious how Michigan looks against Michigan State this weekend because I think that will tell us a lot about kind of their their mental state and their their psychological uh, capabilities, we'll say, um, because that's, a, that's two big games back-to-back. It's going on the road. You know Michigan State's going to give them their best game. So we're going to learn an awful lot about Michigan on Saturday, I think. Um, but to your, your bigger point, and we got a couple of questions like this, you know, what, what is there still to play for, you know, now that the playoffs out of the picture, not the big 10 championships out of the picture. And I saw a couple of people kind of discussing this going into the year where for a lot of people, for a lot of programs, it's not about winning the national championship. And Penn state is not one of those programs where, where you don't, where you think like that, where the, the national championship's a pipe dream. I think it's, it's on the lower run of programs like that, but it's not one of the, it's not Iowa. It's not, you know, that, not that kind of school where you just, you know, Hey, if we get 10 wins. Great. If we, you know, win the big 10 West. Great. Um, but 10 wins, you know, seven and two, you can, in the, in the big 10, I mean, you can, you have a chance to, to beat Michigan and Ann Arbor. You have a chance to, to beat Wisconsin. You have a chance to beat a pretty good Wisconsin team. You're, if you do all those things, if you finish 10 and two, you have a, you're probably going to a major new year, six bowl game for the third year in a row. Um, those are all important. And I think, yeah, we had these high expectations and it's, it sucks to lose them in before the middle of October, but there's still a lot to play for. I think, you know, enjoy your seven more games of Trace McSorley because um, he's, he's the most prolific passer. He's the most prolific quarterback in, in school history. Um, enjoy that because like we said with Saquon Barkley last year, you don't get that very often. Um, you hope you do, but it's just, it's, it's no given that Tommy Stevens or Sean Clifford or, or Will Levis or, or any of the guys, um, Michael Johnson and, and uh, um, Roberson, Roberson are, are going to be that guy. So, so enjoy it while you've got it. And it's, it's to be a little sentimental here for a second. It's, it's, we get, we get 12 of these games a year. We hope we get 15 and we go to the national championship game and and go to the big 10 championship game and all that stuff. But you're guaranteed at at minimum 12 of these weekends a year at most 15 and um, enjoy it. It's a quarter of the year. It's, it's fun. It's supposed to be fun. And um, you know, it's, it's uh from from where Penn State was not that long ago to where they are now, I think it's 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 still exciting. It's frustrating at times when you lose two games, especially games you think you're going to win. But um, you know what's left to play for. I, I what's left to watch for is is all the things I just mentioned. It's it's still Penn State football. It's still it's still the Nittany Lions, and I I think that's that's good enough for me at least. Yeah, for sure, and. Uh... Hopefully, uh, you found this edition of the podcast that is going to go 75 minutes, so God bless you. Uh, Therapeutic, uh, hopefully you enjoyed the discussion we had. Again, we appreciate all the questions that we got, whether or not we answered them. Uh, We do appreciate them. Uh, Hopefully, we don't have to do this again, because us doing it again means that I am uh, dead inside and don't want to have to come up with a... Uh, roadmap for what we're going to talk about on a podcast, so that's good. Uh, I think it's we're going to skip Big Ten talk and just go right into the, the end, so thank you very much uh, for listening to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. Uh, as always, like and subscribe. Uh, 
leave us a review, do all that stuff. We uh, really appreciate that stuff. We always appreciate the little bit of uh, support that we're able to get on iTunes and any other podcasting platform. Uh, keep buying shirts, keep reading the site, keep supporting the site, make sure you follow us on all our social media channels. Yeah, one last time, thank you very much for listening. For my co-host, Matt DeBear, I'm Bill DeFilippo. Take care, everyone.